Our New Testament reading is from Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you guys for having me this morning. I'm excited um, to worship with you. Tim has been your pastor has been um, a resource for me and a friend to me. Uh, I was glad that we got to overlap in RUF for a couple of years. And even since I've been in this area, um, Tim has been so helpful. And I've loved hearing the stories of what God is doing at Grace and Peace. And uh, it's an honor to worship with you this morning. We're going to look at this chapter, this half of this chapter, um, one of the most famous and greatest chapters in all of Scripture so much. The Lord has done through these words over the years. Uh, we're going to consider a couple of things regarding who we are um, as believers and uh, the promises that are there for God's people. And if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, this is something that's held out for you um, as something to consider even this morning. Um, I love how Rankin Wilburn begins his book. This is a book that came out a couple of years ago called Union with Christ. He begins the, the book with this question that probably a lot of us have thought about before. We've wrestled with this idea. It's a make-believe scenario, but he goes into this mindset of imagine for a moment that you, are, that you were switched at birth and that you have like wondered all along if your parents are really your parents. Some of us don't have to imagine that. We really have thought that before. Are these really my parents? Uh, we've got two daughters, they're five and seven, and they're clearly already thinking that. They're becoming embarrassed of me. It happened way too quickly. Um, this happened recently when I started with uh, Clemson RUF, and the first day on campus, freshman move-in, um, we were helping do this, um, move in all the new freshmen on campus, and the students, some of them are here this morning, uh, made me wear a, a new Clemson RUF shirt that was a tank top. And I don't do tank tops. Uh, I don't think I'd worn a tank top since sixth grade, and... I put that tank top on my, you know, mid-30s dad bod, and I um, walked into the living room, and both of our girls screamed. <laughs> and the youngest, the kindergartner, said, no, daddy, no, please no. 
And the second grader said, Dad, I'm in second grade. This is embarrassing. (laughs) And off I went to campus for my first day doing RUF there. You've thought through this before. My kids are already thinking about it. And Rankin gives this scenario. He says, imagine that you've wondered this all along. Are these parents really my parents? And one day you're climbing around in the attic of your home and you come across this old dusty chest. And you start digging around in this chest and you find the papers to prove it. That these parents that you've known your whole life, after all, are not your real parents. That your real parents, actually, as he puts it in his scenario, I just love it. I'm going to read you what he says. He says, your, your real dad was a Nobel Prize winning scientist and a professional basketball player. And then you find out that your mom uh, was a famous painter in Paris. And, and you, you knew it all along. You just knew there was something special about you. And uh, now you have the papers to finally prove it. And also there's this lavish inheritance waiting for you. He says that a discovery would cause you to reinterpret everything about your life. And it would. Where you came from, your true identity, your capacities and capabilities, the resources that are available to you, your future, your destiny. He says after that day, you come out of the attic and your life would never be the same. You would see everything with new eyes. The whole world would be opened up to you, be invigorating and you would feel changed. But here's the thing, and here's his point. Here's our point this morning. It, it was true all along. The thing about that experience is those things were always true, but you just didn't know it yet. He says it was the truth underlying your life before you had discovered it. It was rooted in history, and you had the DNA to prove it. It was true even when it was hidden from your sight, but it didn't begin to change your life until your eyes were open to it. Here's what we're going to consider this morning. What is true for the believer? Who are you? Because for the Christian, God tells us all throughout Scripture who we are. And we've wrestled with that already even this morning. But we're going to look at this great passage to wrestle with this idea. Who are you really? Because I'm convinced that the more we wrestle with that question, the more we come to understand who Jesus himself says that we are, it changes everything about our lives. We need to begin living our lives in the reality of who we truly are. And so the way we're going to work through this this morning, I have kind of three points to lead us through this passage. Who we are or who you are, um, where you're going, and why it matters. And so the first thing is who you are. This begins in verses 28 and 29. This is what's true of your DNA. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that those might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And then it goes on and on and on. And we wrestle with this idea of predestination. It's a big word. Uh, It's a confusing word at times. Growing up in my family, it was almost considered a cuss word in the home that I grew up in. It was just kind of one of those things you you didn't mention this word. We're going to mention it just for a second because it's biblical. It's a biblical idea. Predestination is certainly found there in the scriptures here in this passage. Um, so what does it mean? Clearly for Paul, he's tracing out God's work in a believer's life. And specifically from before they were born until after they are gone. Do you see that? There's this historic kind of moment that flows through those verses that there's a plan in mind. And for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. So who did God foreknow? Now that word is a really important one. 
because it's not just some sense of for awareness. Um, we use the word know fairly loosely. I might tell you that I know the president of Clemson University. It's because I met him once. But like, you know, when I say I know my parents or I know my wife, that means something totally different. We use the word kind of the same way, even when it has different meanings. I don't have a relationship with the president of Clemson University. But God's foreknowledge is an awareness, more than an awareness of someone's existence. It's a personal knowing It's a relationship knowing. And that's a big deal here because most scholars are kind of quick to point out that perhaps a better word than foreknowledge would be foreloving. For those whom God foreloved, those whom he had set his affection upon, those whom he intended from the very beginning of time to have a relationship with, that he foreknew them, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of Christ. And if you're a Christian... I think you have a sense of this biblical idea of predestination already. This is from J.I. Packer, who famously pointed out in his book, Knowing God, that there are two areas of our life where we prove that we do believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. And those two areas of our lives are in our praise and in our prayer. And this makes sense because in our praise, why would we thank God for salvation if we didn't believe that he was the one behind it? Why would we thank him for his work in our lives, and we should, if we didn't believe that he receives all the glory for that work? And in our prayers, if you pray for the salvation of others, if you pray that others would come to know Christ, what are we praying? We're praying that God would work. We're praying that he would give eyes to see and ears to hear. Why do we pray that way? Because we believe he's the one and the only one who can do that work in a believer's life. Martin Luther even said that if you look at a sovereign God and you kind of point your finger and you say, my, my, how could you? He says, if you would simply change your my, my to praise be, then we would begin to get the Christian message. Praise be, how could you? That's the idea for the Christian here. If you were a believer, it is because God has loved you from the very beginning of the world and even before We didn't earn it. We don't get credit for it. Who you are as a Christian is one who has been eternally loved by God in Christ. You have the papers to prove it. It's in your DNA and nothing can take that away from you. Paul works this out in the verses just before these. They're worth reading this week in that great section that's often um, uh, given credit for the doctrine of adoption. That is that you are truly a part of the family of God, a rightful heir to the inheritance because of Christ to be loved fully and finally by God as his child, and nothing can take that away. To be delighted in by the creator. Psalm 145 is one of my favorites, where the psalmist says the Lord takes pleasure in his people. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He loves his people. Zephaniah picks up the same idea when he says that God rejoices over his people with dancing. Do you know who you are? If you are a believer in Christ, you need to know that God takes pleasure in you. He delights in you. He rejoices in you. He loves you perfectly and always has. A chosen child of God, adopted in Christ, that is who you are. And if that's who you are, let me tell you where you're going. You know how when you watch a suspenseful movie the first time, it feels very different 
than you, when you watch it like the 10th time or the 20th time. Uh, I feel this way with The Lion King. Best movie that's ever been made, hands down. We all can agree on that. The first time I watched The Lion King, I remember the emotions of that. I remember feeling the experience of like what, like Mufasa is hanging on the cliff. What's going to happen? And then he falls, and this is supposed to be Disney, but he but he falls and he dies. And and there and and you're wondering what's going to happen to Simba. Is he going to be found out? Is he going to like? Is everyone going to think that he did it? I'm just like so confused, so concerned watching it as my little sixth grade self. But now when I watch The Lion King, I feel differently, right? Because you know how it's going to end. You know Simba's going to find Timon and Pumbaa. He's going to grow up right before their eyes on that very log. And, and it's going like to work out. I want you to hear something. At the end of verse 30, those whom he predestined, that's past tense, he also called past tense. And those whom he called, he also justified, past tense. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's past tense. This is really interesting language. Why is it? If you know how the story is going to end, it really helps you in the tension of the present. And here's how the story is going to end. The doctrine of glorification teaches that one day, someday, things will be made right. Both things on the outside in this horrific world in which we find ourselves, and that's so true even after this week, more tragic events, more heartbreak, horrible things that are happening in our world. Things will be made right. That's what glorification teaches on the outside, but also on the inside. It means that you will be made right. One day... There will be no more struggling, no more tears, no more heartache and heartbreak, no more fighting or jealousy or envy or strife, grudges, bitterness. There will be no more addiction. There will be no more others hurting or self-harming, no more frustration or pain or suffering of any kind. And what glorification teaches us is that one day God's people will be with him in his glory and nothing will hurt them ever again. That's the ending, and that helps us in the tension. One morning um, last year, Lucy, the same one who screamed that I was embarrassing her, the seven-year-old, she was having a series of really bad dreams for um, a, a few weeks. And it was really hard. If you have kids who have those kind of nightmares, it's really difficult. And, and one day we were riding to school, and we were just talking about her bad dreams. And she's, she's a bit of a theologian at this age, and she asked the really interesting questions. And we were talking about her nightmares, and she said, will, will I ever not have nightmares? And so naturally, we start talking about the brokenness of the world and sin and all these things and how it affects all of our lives. And one day, um, perhaps in heaven, we won't have nightmares, but maybe on earth we'll have times where we don't have nightmares either. And she concluded with this little doctrinal nugget of wisdom that I quickly wrote down so I could tell you this morning. But she said this. She said, in heaven... All of earth's nightmares will finally end, and all of earth's dreams will finally come true. Like, yeah, that is right, C.S. Lewis, <laughs> Jones. But that's good, isn't it? In heaven, all of earth's nightmares will end, and our greatest dreams will finally come true. We want that, right? But here's the thing. Don't miss the tense of verse 30. For some reason, when Paul writes this, he says, has been glorified. Have, how did he say it? Um, 
he also glorified, past tense. Why is it in the past? I understand that predestination is in the past. Justification is in the past because it's based on what Christ has already done. But why glorification? Here's the point. It is so true and certain that this is where things are headed, that you can consider it already done. It is so guaranteed that God will bring his people into this hope one day that it is given in the past tense for God's people. You know how things will end. It is so certain it is as good as done. It has always been true of you, and one day we will actually live in its truthfulness once and for all. And that really does help us to live in the tension. So that's who we are, that's where we're going, and why does it matter? I want to ask that kind of big question, so what? Well, let me talk to two different groups of people if I can. First, let me speak to those of you who maybe aren't so sure where you are in your faith right now. Uh, You're struggling to believe, you're not sure that you believe, or you're certain that you don't. And I'm really glad you're here. Um, I'm so encouraged to know that you would come this morning and consider what God might have to say about the questions that you're asking. I suspect that you're here not just because you chose to come, but because even God brought you here even this morning. That you've maybe wrestled with some of these struggles for a long time and you've wondered, could this be true for me? Could God really love me as I am for what I've done? Has he always loved me? I want you to know that you can put your faith in those promises too. That this can be absolutely true for you. To trust in what Christ has done to claim these promises as your own. They are held out for you to accept even today and to put your faith and rest in the perfect work that Jesus has done because it's true for all of us that none of us have lived the life that we are called to live. We can't. But the promise that Jesus took on the death that we all deserve to die is also true. And to put your faith in his life and in his death and then you will come to see more and more why this matters so much for all of us. And for the rest of us, let me give you three reasons. Three reasons this matters so much. Um, Paul gives a ton of questions at the end of chapter 8. We don't have time to kind of work through all of them. But his central idea, his central question is, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And he names a number of different scenarios and situations. And he's asking, can this separate us from the love of Christ? Can this separate us from the love of Christ? He goes through the list of famine and nakedness and danger and persecution and even martyrdom. But his point is, as he concludes at the end, is I am sure that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And so here's three reasons why this is so important for us to believe this morning. One, because we so often live as if we believe that our true value comes from something we have accomplished or have yet to accomplish. We often believe as Christians that we are loved for what we do and that we're not loved for who we are. And so our sense of worth and value comes from all sorts of different things. It comes from work and our careers. We pour ourselves into whatever field we're in. And it can be ministry. It can be whatever. And we pour ourselves into it because we are looking for that to give us meaning and hope and purpose and satisfaction or value. 
because we're not yet secure enough in understanding who we are to God, we have to prove it to every single person in the world that we really are something. Or we do it with relationships. And we become so rocked when things are not well in a certain relationship in our life, whether it's with parents or with kids or with a boyfriend or, or even with a coworker, and we become so consumed when things aren't right because now all of a sudden my value is attached to what this person thinks of me at this particular time. We do it with our parenting. We want to find value. I want to prove myself that I really do have my act together if my kids will just act right. They will show you how good I am as a parent. If you were to watch me four minutes before I left the house this morning, you would quickly know that's not the case. But I really believe it, right? I want to hold my kids out before you. That's even why I quote my daughter twice this morning. Because I want you to know that we have theological conversations. Aren't we something? But that's me trying to get value. We do it in all sorts of ways. We even do it with our spirituality. You know, we, we kind of, some of us, and I, I struggle with this, we want to flaunt the sense of I have more answers than others. I'm more in touch with my spiritual life. I've read more scripture. I pray longer prayers. And so often we, good things, right? Those are, none of those are bad things on their own. But when we look to those things to give us life, to give us value, we just keep searching. And so we're seeking approval and acceptance and security, but they can never deliver those things. But the gospel tells us that your value is intrinsic to your identity as a believer. That you are in Christ and Christ is in you. It's not who you are or it's not what you've done. It's who you are because of who Jesus says that you are. And so when we wrestle with that and when we believe that, then it gives, re, like it gives more purpose to those areas, right? It makes our work have more purpose. It makes our relationships have more intentionality. It makes our spiritual life actually point us to something, our parenting, whatever. Now we have a purpose to glorify God in those areas, not just to derive value from those areas because that never works. The second reason it matters so much is because we too often believe that God still loves us based on our sinlessness. This is something I work through with students a lot. I would imagine that if you struggle with assurance of salvation or you struggle with security of salvation, then one of the times that that struggle is most intense is when you see certain patterns of sin in your life. Me too. And so what we have to see is that God's love for his people is based on his love for his people, not their love for him. God's love for you is based on his love for you as evidenced in the life of Christ, not on our love for him. One scholar, as I was studying this passage, pointed out that it's so ironic that the doctrine of divine predestination often produces in believers anxiety. Like, I've got to prove this, or I don't know what to do with this. Um, what does it mean? What, how am I supposed to respond? All those things. Sometimes it produces anxiety, but it's ironic because the doctrine of divine predestination actually teaches that it is precisely because of God's sovereignty in our lives, including salvation, that we can find ultimate rest and security and hope. Even and especially when we see ourselves as sinners desperately in need of God's cleansing work in our lives. 
And so when Paul says, who shall bring charges against us and who is to condemn, that who that he is speaking of is none other than Satan himself, the accuser, whose desire is nothing less than that we would continually take our eyes off of what God has done through Christ. And that he desires that we would either look within and say, yep, I'm doing really great. I don't really have that much to confess. Or that we would look within and say, I'm doing horribly. How could God ever love me? He probably doesn't. And Satan wants us to stay there and run and hide. Listen, the O love that will not let me go is God's love for you, not your love for God. Of course, our love is fickle and frail and stubborn and perhaps comes and goes dependent on God knows what in our lives. But God's love for you is not fickle and frail. It is steadfast, long-lasting, faithful to the end because it is rooted in Christ's performance and not our own. That is good news. So how can Satan then not bring charges against you? Because Jesus has died for every one of those charges. In the passage, it says that God who did not spare his own son, he took on the penalty for all of those charges because the reality is every list that Satan can come up with to accuse me of, he's absolutely right. Except one thing, God's love never changes. How can Satan not condemn you to hell or God himself condemn you to hell? Because Jesus has been condemned so that you and I could be eternally pardoned. That is the reality. No matter the struggle, that is the reality. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. One commentary, I think it was John Stott, said that the passage, Romans 8, begins with there is no condemnation for you in Christ. But it ends with and there is no separation for you in Christ. The book ends of chapter 8. And Charles Spurgeon, this quote is in your bulletin today. The famous Baptist minister, he said, Christ did not love you for your good works. They were not the cause of his beginning to love you. So he does not love you for your good works even now. They are not the cause of his continuing to love you. He loves you because he loves you. That is good news. Let me offer you one more and we finish with this one. One more reason why it's so important to understand our identity in Christ. Because too often we believe that suffering is evidence that God doesn't love us after all. There's a lot of talk in this final section on all the terrible things that can come up in a Christian's life. To be in need, to be persecuted, to be attacked and even killed. Yet Paul says that none of those things can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Well, let me just say that Paul never says that we won't experience those things or that we won't be afflicted by some of the worst things that this world has to offer. But he does say that none of them could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is important. Suffering doesn't mean that we won't be afflicted, but it does mean that we won't be separated ever. Ironically, just as the doctrine of divine predestination can actually work to produce assurance in us and not anxiety, so too can actual suffering in a believer's life produce in them confidence in the gospel and not doubt 
And some of you have experienced this firsthand. You know exactly how true that is. Because scripture helps us to see that true suffering aligns us with Christ's life, one which is filled with suffering. And we understand our need in a greater way and our dependency in the most profound way that even in our worst moments, God's love is so near. Uh, We experienced this in our RUF community this week. Um, One of our students, a freshman student, was in a really horrible car wreck uh, on campus on Tuesday night, um, an hour before RUF began. It rocked our campus, uh, rocked our local church. He grew up at Clemson Presbyterian Church, um, and he was in really bad shape. It could have been so much worse. Some of you may have read about it on the news. It became like a national story um, because it... uh, the Clemson football team was involved with some of his connections. The young man's named Clary, and I've been talking to Clary a lot this week, and he is, he's fine. He's going to have a long road of recovery, um, but it could have been so much worse. And talking with him this week, every time I talk to him, all he wants to talk about is what he's learning about how good God is to him. And I just think it's profound to see this 18-year-old young man who grew up in a church, and this is what he told me yesterday on the phone. He said, I'm still, like, I'm wondering why me. I'm asking that question. I'm wrestling with why did it have to be me, and why did I have to go through this? And he said, because it's not like my worldview has changed. He said, this isn't one of those stories. This is what he told me yesterday. He said, this isn't one of those stories where now all of a sudden I come out of this thing with, like, a new worldview that, after all, God is good. I was living my life one day. He said, I've been a Christian for a long time. But actually nothing has changed except I understand God's love in a different way. And he's experienced that in a number, number of different ways. I want to read you something that Clary, his name's Clary Miles. I want to read you something he posted on social media a couple days ago to show just how true this has been for him. He said, for those of you who haven't heard, I was in a potentially life-threatening car accident Tuesday evening. By God's grace, my injuries are limited to a broken pelvis, some bladder issues, and a few scrapes and fractures here and there. There are not words to describe how I'm feeling right now. My body is broken, but my heart is so full. And he goes on to thank all these different people who've been involved and have cared for him. But then he says this at the end. He says, we know from the word that all things work together for good. Where does that come from? It's Romans 8. But to see that played out by everyone, even hours after the accident, whether that was directly by aiding me or calling my family or loved ones to tell them what happened, all of it's truly a blessing. Thanks for all of your prayers and love. There is no word strong enough to express the gratitude and joy that I have in my heart right now. To God be all the glory. This is what suffering can do in our lives, isn't it? Give us a more profound sense of the nearness of God. His love for us. I want to give you uh, one more story and then we're done. Because this really proved to be true for Paul's audience, the Roman church the Roman Christians, he writes to them and he says that neither tribulation or sword or danger would ever separate them from God's love. Yet, within just a few years, within just a few years of receiving this letter, many of them were undoubtedly killed for their faith during Nero's awful reign. The last example is a guy named George who understood physical suffering and also emotional suffering. He began to go blind when he was a teenager. And it was while he was in college that he was preparing to be a minister that he became totally blind. And it was during the same time that he was engaged and his fiance called off the wedding and he spiraled into a horrible depression. He continued in his studies, blind and lonely. 
And George's sister came alongside him and, and really helped him and encouraged him and helped him finish school. And legend has it, the story goes, that it was after one of his sisters then became engaged that he became more depressed and just wondering, what is God doing? And that's when he went into his study. And in 1882, this guy named George Matheson wrote these words in a hymn that we're going to sing even this morning. When he wrote, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean's depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Here's the point, and Paul's point. It isn't that we won't suffer, or that suffering is evidence that God doesn't love us. Instead, seasons of suffering can be deeper evidence of God's continual nearness to remind us always that no power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck us from his hand. So what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Paul says he is convinced that nothing can. Are you so convinced? Are you living in these promises even now? Even this morning, is this your reality? It's something that's always been true. It's in your DNA. You have the papers to prove it. Climb up in the attic, read the stories, see what's true of you, and begin living more and more in light of the reality of who you are in Christ. Would you pray with me as we go to the table this morning? Jesus, you have secured these promises for us only through your suffering. By taking on the worst that this world has to offer, the worst that I have to offer, you took on all the evil, all the heartache, all the depression, all the fear, all the anxiety, all of my sins, past, present, and future, when you took on the cross. And by taking on the cross, you have given those who trust in you a very new identity. Son, daughter of the living God. Help us to believe that these promises are true even for us. This morning, help us to find hope find security, rest in the approval that's already been offered, find comfort, healing, life. Pray that you would work this out in us to your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.